Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today's guest is Anthony Mowesky, who is the chairman of Nickel 28, who are an innovative battery metals focused investment vehicle with a focus on metal streaming and royalty agreements, um, offering our investors um, exposure to metals integral to key technologies of the electric vehicle and energy store, uh, storage markets. Um, Anthony's an entrepreneur with a background in finance and law and is here today to tell us more about Nickel 28 um, and what they are sort of looking to achieve, plus many other things as well. So that's welcome, Anthony, to the podcast. How are you doing, Anthony? Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me, but I always appreciate uh, you taking some time to, to catch up. Yeah, and likewise as well. So um, how we always start these podcasts, I just wondered if you can tell the audience um, a bit about your background. Obviously, I mentioned that you're you're an entrepreneur and you've been involved in finance and law. So I just wondered if you can take us through your, your career, say, from when you graduated, how your career and journey has um, evolved to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, actually, my first real job, I guess, would have been at Skadden Arps as a lawyer, which is, which is kind of funny now. But, um, you know, even from the beginning, the deals and transactions I worked on were in natural resources. And, and I pretty quickly uh, made my way to a hedge fund in New York, uh, worked for a portfolio manager, James Passon, who at the time had an enormous book of, of um, commodity investments and worked with him for years uh, before moving on where I became a managing director at Paula Investments, which is a mining-only investment fund. And then, you know, at some point after five or six years, I left and, and uh, wanted to, to run and found and invest in public companies. And so I went down that path and, and have sort of been in the space ever since. And really, I think, um, you know, one of the things I like to do is I try to think about you know, where the market's heading and, and try to invest in the metals and commodities uh, early on, and and then you're able to better position yourself, such that when the move comes, you're already long, and you can then really participate in the appreciation. And sometimes that means, you know, a passive investment, right? Like uh, copper, right now, you know, I put money into a range of copper companies, like First Quantum, the big liquid company, you know, and and then smaller companies like U.S. Copper, uh, USCN on uh, the TSX, which I don't have any real involvement in, other than I think they're drilling in. In the states, you know, and that's kind of just passive. On the other hand, you know, Nickel Twenty Eight. I'm the executive chairman, and I'm involved day to day in the running of that company and in the management of that company. And that's a, a streaming and royalty company with really one uh, primary asset, which is um, the largest producer of MHP in the world, Nickel, um, out of out of PNG and a, a critical supplier to batteries everywhere. So. You know, I'm involved passively, I'm involved actively. I like to try to take a view early. Uh, carbon is an example of that. You know, I've been investing in the regulated and the voluntary markets. I think that's interesting and it's coming down the pipe. But yeah, that, that's my background. Uh, really fascinated by markets and and in particular as they, you know, pertain to commodities and currencies. So that's what I spend my day thinking about. 
Yeah. Um, one thing you can tell us a little bit about, obviously, uh, Nipple 28, um, and obviously with people that are listening that may not know about, obviously, royalty and streaming, etc. So I just wanted to even give us an overview of the company um, and around, obviously, royalty and streaming. Yeah, I mean, Nickel 28, uh, it, it, it owns uh, part of the Ramu Nickel Mine, which is the largest MHP produced in the world, which is a, a mixed hydroxide product. Uh, that is important because that is... You know, precursor that goes into batteries so that form of nickel is is one of the you know most desired forms of nickel to go into batteries you know the mine's been producing now for i think over over seven years it's at steady state um in recent quarters it's been producing over capacity and so that's really our key asset and and we've had you know great couple quarters now it's all public um where you know we're kind of um you know, going to be free cash flow positive this year, which is a, a unique moment for the company where I have cash flow and, and, you know, hopefully either do a, a dividend and a buyback or a buyback, you know, we'll see what kind of what happens there. Uh, we also have a portfolio of royalties uh, on assets in Australia and Canada, Dumont being one of them, you know, it's been recently in the press that Goldman is running a, a process for Waterton, the owner of Dumont to find a partner. That's fantastic for us because, you know, if a partner's found a Rio Tinto or BHP to build that, you know, that materially increases the value of it. Uh, Turnigan asset in British Columbia, once again, you know, they're out looking for partners. And then, you know, a handful of, of assets in uh, Australia as well. So it, it's a vehicle that's highly leveraged to the move in nickel and to a lesser extent cobalt. Um, on most of the mines and assets, it's kind of a 10 to 1 ratio, 10 part nickel, 1 part cobalt in terms of the gearing. Um, I would say, you know, if, if you're not familiar with the streaming and royalty model, a key differentiator is you have exposure to the cash flow, you have exposure to the commodity price fluctuation, but what you don't have is operating exposure. Like we don't operate any of these assets. And I think, um, you know, when you're buying a single asset mine, there's a lot of risk there. I think the model in general is interesting because you're diversified across in all these companies, streaming world, the companies, you're hopefully diversified across a bunch of different assets and different jurisdictions. Um, and that, you know, is a little bit of a different model than just a, a, a pure mining company. Yeah. And what's the difference between a royalty and streaming? You know, I think there's like a lot of tax nuance there, but I think, um, the easiest difference, like the most basic way to think about it is the royalty is just a percentage of revenue. It's just a percentage of it, some other number, right? Like it's a percentage of royalties pre or post tax, a revenue, excuse me, pre or post tax, just kind of depending on where it sits because there's different kinds of royalties. So it's literally just 1% of fill in the blank, right? Uh, 1% of post-tax revenue, 1% of pre-tax revenue, 1% of sales, right? Just the basic thing. Um, streams are are almost always linked more specifically to the physical so maybe you've agreed to pay one dollar for whatever that physical is i'm just making up a number and then we split everything over a dollar or you know maybe i get the physical so there's a bunch of variations and so and i'm really simplifying here but i think the best way to think about it is a stream is often linked in some way to the physical commodity um and potentially the delivery of that commodity and and maybe you know, the price fluctuations in that commodity. Whereas, 
and oftentimes the the stream holder has the right to take the physical whereas with the royalty it's usually just a percentage of some other number and that's very simplified but i think that's the easiest way to think about it yeah and i would say by the way and i I would note um that royalties in particular like in canada um can withstand bankruptcy and i don't believe that streams have been tested uh i don't believe streams have been tested yet um in that way but but that and the the point about the physical is a much kind of easier way to think about it yeah no i understand um so what is the carbon market well the carbon market is something separate and apart from nickel 28 i mean the carbon market uh, i've become deeply fascinated in this market and um look you know there are two markets for carbon basically there's a regulated market and a voluntary market and the regulated carbon market emissions market you know, the biggest one in the world today is really the European market. It's the oldest, it's the most liquid. But California, Canada, China's developing one. They all have these emission markets that are at different stages of development. And it's really, in, you know, it's really um, government directing emitters, polluters to pay a carbon tax um, and hopefully defer them or deter them, I should say, from continuing to um pollute or or maybe a better way to think about it is it's costing them money to emit this carbon so hopefully they change their technology or do something so that you know they don't continue to pay that tax so that's the that's the regulated market the voluntary market is something different the voluntary market is really whenever you go to fly on an airline or when we used to fly on airlines uh, or when you buy something on amazon there's a little box and it says oh you know for 7.95 you can offset your carbon footprint or when Shell or one of these big companies says, we're going to be carbon neutral in 2030. You know, those are, are voluntary because they're volunteering to offset their carbon footprint. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the much more interesting market because that market uh, is going to dwarf, I think, the regulated market if all of these um, companies that have made pledges to go carbon neutral actually do that. They're going to need to buy these voluntary credits. And, and within voluntary credits, the most interesting thing uh, are nature-based solutions. And a nature-based solution is when you're offsetting your carbon footprint by reforesting a forest or you know, somehow getting involved in a project that is enhancing the environment. And I think it's, uh, it's a really dynamic and interesting kind of moment for that because it's only been in the last couple, the, the carbon markets have been around for over a decade, but it's only been in the last couple of years where that voluntary market has really gotten traction now. Yeah. Um, and how does the uh, voluntary carbon market actually work? Yeah, so the way it works is uh, someone has a project and, and you know they have the decision between a number of standards. I prefer Vera, but they're a gold standard. There's a handful of standards. And um, they go out and they, you know, ultimately look at what it's going to take to be, you know, listed and in line with these climate goals of the, you know, like the, the, um, the programs as it were, the registry programs that to figure out um, how much carbon will be sequestered by the project and all these kinds of things. And so, you know, they engage a scientist to do that. And then they figure that out and they come up with a dollar cost. What's it going to cost to implement this project? They seek an investor, maybe they have an investor. And so that process takes time. Um, but, but ultimately through that process, they generate a credit, um, that's registered on in this example, the Vera exchange. And then that credit is then sold to a Delta airlines or someone who wants to offset their carbon footprint voluntarily, 
And I think the key is, you know, in the early days of the carbon voluntary carbon market, like it was, it was not the same. Like a, a metric ton of carbon wasn't a metric ton of carbon because different people were using different standards and you know using different science. And I think what you're seeing now is a consolidation around norms that mean when a company goes to offset its carbon footprint, you know they they're they're doing that in a, a systematic fashion. And so by consolidating into a kind of a handful of standards. You really have a moment now where the big companies feel comfortable going ahead and offsetting their footprint through, uh, I would say, these these kind of set standards. Whereas in the early days of the market, um, I think there was discomfort because you didn't really know what you're getting. You know, was the force going to be there? Well, now there's protocols in place such that you don't like, chop down the forest a year after the credits are written and that sort of thing. So it, it's really evolved. And now with the current push and the climate awareness that's growing, I think it's just going to continue to become more interesting. Yeah. Um, obviously, I don't know too much about sort of these carbon credits, and I see it here and there and sort of everywhere. Who is actually buying carbon credits? And obviously, we're, we're obviously in the mining resources industry, so I wonder if you can tell us sort of what companies within the mining resources um, industry of buying credits and obviously some of other companies may be outside of the mining industry that most people yeah. may be familiar so, with. So outside of the mining industry, I, I almost can't think of a company that's not entering the space now. Okay. I mean, like, literally, yeah. I can't think of any. I mean, you know, ESG, environmental social governance, you know, that, that almost dictates that all these companies are going to have to be doing something about offsetting their footprint. Mm. Uh, just this one's like, sorry about the background noise. Um, so that, that almost dictates that almost dictates that all those companies have to be involved in it. And they are like you, and you pick a company, you name a company and I promise that they will have, um, can we, can we hold on just for one second? I need to, I want to stop the background noise there. So, so yeah, like the Delta, if, I mean, if you just Google almost any company you buy widgets from, whether it's your clothing You'll, you'll probably find that they have some climate goals and that kind of links back into the ESG um, principles and you know that movement in the US and even ETFs and BlackRock and, and the major buyers of equity now are saying it's important. So um, be hard pressed to find someone who's not doing it on that side. Mining, mining it's also started. Um, you know, Nickel 28, we were the first nickel company that we're aware of to completely offset our carbon footprint by buying credits. But, but the larger companies are all starting to write sustainability reports and think about what they can do and what it's going to cost them. Uh, save it for coal companies. Like, I don't know how you burn coal. I mean, I don't know how that's going to work. But um, uh, I, I would just say that um, it, it's, it's started and it's happening even within mining. And, and uh, it's, it's going to basically make it so that you are unable to move forward as a mining company if you don't do something about it. And in Canada, in the nickel space, whether it's Turnagain, um, I think Canada Nickel put out an announcement or Canadian Nickel, um, I can't think, Mark Selby's company, you know, they're already looking about sequestering carbon and tailings at Turnagain. So uh, it's becoming relevant and it's going to be increasingly relevant for the mining business as well. Yeah. So what factors are involved in actually determining the price of a carbon credit? Supply and demand. Um, okay. I would say, though, um, in particular for voluntary credits, I would say there's kind of two markets. There's a premium market 
And then there's, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe a non-premium. I don't know if that's really the right nomenclature, but you know, there are credits that will trade at a material premium to most credits. And those credits are usually credits which uh, are associated with a project that is um, kind of annual meeting worthy. And what I mean by that is it can be used as a marketing tool for the companies. And so maybe the implementation of that project costs more. You know, maybe to save the orangutans in, in the jungle, just the creation of that credit was more expensive. So notwithstanding that, the whole idea under these um, different registries is, is, is a metric ton is a metric ton. And so you're commoditizing most of the credits, but just within that, there is an element of advertising and wanting to you know, sort of tell people that you've offset your footprint and we've done it with this great project with such and such group in such and such place. But um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit how that market is trading today. Yeah. So for me to, and probably the audience to sort of understand it a little bit more, is the more carbon credits you have, does that mean the more sort of um, more the way the company is contributing to the environment? So it makes you look better. Your, your, you know, I don't know, pick at your mining company X, you make, you do mine, you mine widgets. Um, you know, first you have to kind of have someone in and calculate it and they need to, they need to say, okay, you're going to burn X amount of fuel, X amount of, uh, you know, you kind of go through the whole supply chain and, and it's pretty easy and scientific at this point. A guy called Lyle Trenton in Canada has done a great job really in the mining space, figuring this out. Um, and they come back with a number and they'll say, you know what, within, within a 10% here, uh, and here's what, here's what our assumptions were. You know, we, we think that you're doing 100,000 metric tons of carbon annually. That, that offsets your footprint and puts you at carbon neutral. Um, and, and within that scope, because you're going to probably disclose this at some point in a circular or in your, you know, in your annual disclosure, within that scope, you got to say, like, what it is you're offsetting. Um, you know, are you offsetting it until it touches the trader, your, your gate? You know, so that's just a, a feature or a function of defining what you're talking about. Um, and then they come back with a number, and that number is on an annual basis, you have 170,000 metric ton um, carbon footprint. They say, okay, and then what you do is you go and you buy those credits. And what's interesting about a registry is taking possession of the credit doesn't offset it. In fact, you extinguish the credit. And so you extinguish the credit on the registry, and, and you can say, if you want, um, nickel 28 extinguishes 100 and X thousand credits in 2021 to offset their carbon footprint. And in that way, anyone, if you've disclosed or put out a press release that, that you're carbon neutral, well, anyone can then go and see that, yeah, in fact, uh, I can see that in 2021, uh, nickel 2008 extinguished, you know, I think in our case, it was like 50 something thousand credits. We extinguished those credits. And then, and then once you, it's not the purchase of the credits that makes you carbon neutral, it's actually extinguishing them because um, if I just buy credits, I mean, you and I can go buy credits and we can turn around and sell them uh, if we want. So it's the actual extinguishing them uh, that makes you carbon neutral once your annual carbon footprint has been determined. Okay. So why should investors be thinking about uh, the carbon markets? Yeah, well, there's two reasons. I mean, one, the price of carbon, it just keeps going up, right? And, and like, there's a greater awareness and a bigger push among governments. So I think 
uh, it's just another commodity to be long. I mean, it's super interesting what's happening. I think that's one reason is to speculate. And I think a second reason is because it's going to impact all these businesses that you're investing in. Um, it, it's going to become a feature of the balance sheet, a definitive feature of a balance sheet. And if the company is actually producing, it'll become an even more important feature because carbon emitted during exploration is like, it's, it's really tiny and not relevant, but, or not, I mean, everything is relevant, but relative to like what a producer is going to have to pay. And so I think it's just important to become aware of another feature of the balance sheet that's that's developing and going to continue to develop and become more important in coming years. Okay. Um, obviously, we've been talking about carbon credits and carbon, carbon footprints. Is there anything else that you would like to add that we haven't spoken about? Because I suppose, um, well, for myself, it, I see it, I see it around, but I don't necessarily understand it fully. And I think you've obviously explained quite a lot about um, credits footprint. Is there anything else you want to add to? Um, to no, I think, I mean, I think that's the, yeah. I mean, that's that's the basics. I, I do think as an investor, you want to be aware for the reason I said. I mean, this, this is going to get bigger and bigger, and it's going to become more important. And so, uh, you know, as you know, as um, these markets change. Uh, it's going to impact your investments and it's worth starting to think about and how that's going to come into play. You know, people, yeah. I, I actually think that, that it's possible that at some future date, people will make investment decisions to not invest around carbon footprint. I mean, I think that that's coming. And so um, it's worth just thinking about it, having any radar. Yeah. Um, and as a conclusion, just want to um, one even give us a, an overview or uh, a future outlook for Nickel 28. Yeah, I mean, look, the key for Nickel 28 at this point is this transition into being a free cash flow uh, company. You know, uh, in a lot of ways, it looked like a development company because it was paying down the debt that we had for the construction debt um, that we've had on the balance sheet. But I, I think that in the coming months and through the rest of the year, as the quarterlies come in and investors see the cash flow generation at Ramu, I think it's really trans. And the stock's already gone from 15 cents to a dollar or a dollar two, whatever it's trading at. And I think that's just because, um, you know, we're here and and we're we're in that moment where that debt is paid down or being paid down. Okay. And um, why should investors invest in nickel 28? You know, it's leverage to nickel. Uh, there are not a lot of pure plays out there. Share it is problematic because of Cuba. And a lot of the majors have exposure to a ton of different commodities. And so if, if you want exposure to nickel, producing nickel, because there are obviously other exploration plays out there that have merit. But if you want actual leverage for today, I mean, I think we're probably one of the, if not the only name like a in, in Canada. Yeah. And um, just an, another last question. Um, just wanted to give us uh, an update of the nickel market at the moment. Yeah, so I think the nickel market's kind of on hold. Um, you know, we had a great, you know, great year end, early part of the year, and then Tianqin, who disrupted the nickel pig iron market in the last cycle, came out and said they were going to do the same thing here uh, in conversion nickel pig iron to nickel mat, nickel mat being used in batteries. Um, that technology is not new. The market misunderstood that a little bit. I think uh, the question would be, oh, can they do it in an inexpensive manner? Um, it seems pretty unlikely, um, but that that apprehension has held back the nickel price because obviously they completely disrupted the nickel market over a decade ago. 
So the market's waiting to see because the um, the punchline would be, oh, they could just then make nickel mad from all the nickel, the nickel pig iron in Indonesia, and then the price of nickel would remain low indefinitely. That, I mean, that's the narrative that's holding back the market. I, I actually don't think that that's the case. You know, Valet has been doing this or has the technology this for years. Um, people get confused. It's not about the technology. It's no, it's about the price. And that conversion is really just the price of energy on the back of huge capex. So what I believe will happen is later in the year, probably around LME week in October, we'll start to understand that in fact, um, it's not as cheap as people had feared. And if you can have mines built, if you're going to have the Turnigans and Dumonts um, built, you're probably going to need a couple dollar uh, higher you know, signaling price from the market to do that because right now it doesn't feel like the nickel price is high enough to 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 go down a multi-billion dollar capex journey for for a new mine. Okay. Um Anthony, really appreciate your time and uh give us an overview of especially carbon credits, carbon footprint, um, an overview of obviously nickel and nickel 28. If our audience wants to reach out to you, uh, if they've got any questions, um, how can they go about doing that? And are you on any social media platforms? Yeah, I'm on um, are you Anthony Mluski on uh, on Twitter. If they DM me, I'm always happy to take a question. Okay. We'll include all those in the uh, show notes uh, accompanying this podcast. Um, so I really appreciate your time and uh, uh, give us a, an overview of, like I said, the carbon credits and, and obviously Nickel 28. Um, hope our audience has enjoyed this uh, podcast, Listen to um, obviously what Anthony had to say. Um, appreciate if you can share uh, the episode to friends, family, people in the industry um, who may have an interest, especially in Nickel um, and around carbon credits. And as Anthony mentioned, it is going to be sort of in, increasing um, you're going to hear about carbon credits, carbon footprint, ever increasing in the industry. So appreciate you share this episode so people can um, understand um, more about, obviously, uh, about carbon credits and footprints. So, and those who are listening to the YouTube channel, appreciate you can like and share below um, so more people can have access to this, uh, to this episode and, um, and educate, educate the industry more so. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.